welcome to another MLEX podcast. I'm Leah Nyland, MLEX's Chief Global Antitrust Correspondent based in Washington, D.C. And I'm Mike Swift, MLEX's Chief Global Digital Risk Correspondent based in San Francisco. 2017 was a year of big changes in the U.S. legal and regulatory area, in large part because of the deregulatory efforts of Republican President Donald Trump, who took over in January. In the antitrust world, the year could best be described as getting off to a slow start and ending with fireworks. And in the realm of privacy and data security, 2017 is likely to be remembered as the year of the data breach suit and perhaps the end of net neutrality. Stay tuned on that one. Just in case you weren't paying as close attention as Leah and I were to antitrust and privacy news, we're here to recap for you the biggest trends and stories from 2017. So Leah, at the beginning of 2017, the big question for everyone in the antitrust world was what would Donald Trump's antitrust approach be? What have we learned in the first year of the Trump administration? So we've definitely learned a couple things, but there are still various moving pieces. So Trump has yet to put his mark on the FTC. He nominated Joseph Simons. Um, he's a partner at Paul Weiss to be chairman and uh, Rohit Chopra to fill out one of the um, open Democratic spots. He named these folks in October, but those nominations still haven't yet been sent to the Senate, which is a procedural step that has to happen before they can actually be voted on. Right now, the FTC is a little bit hamstrung. It only has two commissioners, uh, acting chairman Maureen Olhausen, who's a Republican, and Terrell McSweeney, who's a Democrat. So in general, both of them have to agree for anything at the FTC to get done, and that has been slowing things down a little. Over at the U.S. Department of Justice, uh, Trump nominated Macon Del Rahim, who was a lawyer working in the White House um, earlier this year, but it took him until the end of September to get confirmed. So it was quite a long wait from January until September for there to be leadership at the U.S. Department of Justice. So that put a lot of things on hold, um, or at least slowed them down, various merger reviews or conduct cases that were pending. Since um, Del Rahim has taken over, though, there's been a little bit of a whirlwind. One of the very first things he did was give a speech that reversed a lot of the uh, positions on intellectual property that the Obama administration had done. He also gave um, a pretty big speech saying that he was very skeptical of entering uh, long-term consent decrees for merger reviews or other type of conduct. He was uh, very skeptical of entering consent decrees um, to resolve merger reviews or other sort of antitrust concerns. And that came in big in the AT&T Time Warner case. That one was a vertical deal that everyone had sort of thought was going to be resolved with a consent decree because that's how most vertical mergers are resolved. But uh, when Macon came in, said he wasn't going to do a consent decree, that led the Justice Department to file suit. So what we've learned so far is that there are a lot of traditional Republicans who have been put in place at the agencies who um, take a lot of traditional Republican views about antitrust, i.e. that there shouldn't be that much enforcement or that much intervention in the markets. But we have seen that they're still willing to bring some potentially controversial or difficult cases like the AT&T Time Warner one. Yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, one of the biggest antitrust stories of the year was the DOJ's decision to challenge um, the AT&T uh, potential merger with Time Warner. So what's the status of that and when should we expect a resolution? So uh, the Justice Department sued on November 20th. It was right before Thanksgiving. Um, and AT&T has promised that it um, 
intends to contest the challenge. As I said, this is a vertical merger. There is not a, actually a lot of case law about vertical mergers and what makes them anti-competitive. So some people have been teeing this up as like the merger challenge of the decade because it's going to set some pretty interesting new law in the area of vertical merger challenges. The judge we're seeing that is Judge Richard Leon here in Washington, DC. He has set the trial for March 19th and it's expected to go about two weeks. Um, and the judge has indicated that he thinks he can issue a ruling before the mer merger deadline, which is on April 22nd. So we're looking at probably a decision in the first quarter, maybe um, beginning of the second quarter of 2018. One of the big stories this year for privacy was the Equifax data breach, but it was hardly the largest data breach in the history. It only affected about 57 million people, I think. So why did it spark such a powerful result in Congress and U.S. courts? Yeah, that, that's right. It was far from being the largest breach in history. I mean, it's dwarfed by um, the three billion accounts that um, were hacked uh, in Yahoo's network, uh, which was another uh, data breach story that we learned this year. But um, what was different about Equifax was uh, just the uh, the quality of the information that was exposed, uh, specifically social security numbers, which um, in the United States are really the one unique identifier for, for individual consumers and that you can never really change. So uh, for identity uh, thieves, uh, social security numbers are really kind of the holy grail. And I, I think that the fact that um, this meant that the social security numbers of a very significant segment of the U.S. population are basically out there on the dark web, you know, waiting for um, for anyone to uh, any criminal to make use of and, and uh, try and open, you know, phony bank accounts or take out loans in their name or file uh, fraudulent tax returns. There are a lot of different things they can do with that information. And it really shook people up. And, you know, one result has just been um, an avalanche of class action litigation. Um, more than uh, 250 lawsuits have been filed against Equifax around the country. And those have now been consolidated before um, the uh, Northern District of Georgia. And we'll be watching that play out in the coming year. So Mike, what do all these data breach litigation events of 2017 portend for 2018? Well, you know, another big story was that we saw uh, the largest settlement uh, for a class, a class action data breach case in history. And that was the $115 million settlement of the Anthem data breach um, uh, that affected about 80 million people. Um, and I think one thing uh, we can safely say is that these settlements are only going to get bigger. Um, the Anthem breach uh, affected about 80 million people. Um, a number of those, however, did uh, have their social security numbers uh, revealed. So. Um, I think it's safe to say that whatever happens in the Equifax case, whether it goes to trial, which is highly unusual, unlikely, um, or has a settlement, that um, the settlements are going to get bigger. Um, you know, the other thing that we're really seeing happening uh, this year is that um, uh, uh, the case courts, uh, particularly in the West Coast, are increasingly willing to draw a chain of causation between uh, the breach of data and the risk of future harm. So they're allowing cases to go forward 
that in the past might have been knocked out at the motion to dismiss stage because they are saying that um, the risk of future harm in the form of identity theft is enough to give plaintiffs standing to sue. And we, we saw that in the Yahoo case where uh, Judge Lucy Coe in San Jose, California, uh, denied mo uh, Yahoo's motion to dismiss and allowed that case to go forward. And, and I think that's something we'll be seeing more and more of around the country. 2017 was a big year for antitrust in the healthcare industry. What happened this year and what will 2018 bring in this space? So one of the big uh, stories of last year, 2016, was consolidation in the healthcare industry. You saw a lot of big proposed mergers. There was Anthem's proposal to buy Cigna and Aetna's proposal to buy Humana. That would have that would have reduced the number of large health insurers in the U.S. from five to about three, with um, Anthem, Cigna, Aetna, Humana, and United Healthcare being the three remaining. So at the end of 2016, the Justice Department challenged both of the proposed mergers, and they went to trial in November and December of 2016. And the decisions came out right at the beginning of this year in 2017, and the Justice Department won in both cases. Uh, judges here in D.C. ruled that both mergers would substantially harm competition and blocked the mergers. So Anthem, Cigna, Aetna, and Humana sort of went back to the drawing board. Now they're sort of taking a new tack. About a month ago, Aetna announced that it was planning to merge with CVS, one of the largest uh, retail pharmacies here in the U.S. That'll give Aetna, which is um, a the health insurer, access to a lot more um, patients through CVS's retail pharmacies. So earlier today, actually, Humana agreed to buy Kindred Healthcare, which is the largest home health provider and hospice operator in the U.S. And this is interesting because Humana does a lot of Medicaid work. Um, it offers health insurance plans for Medicaid patients and also for Medicare patients. So that's going to give them a bigger pool of potential patients that they can offer their insurance to. Both of those mergers, CVS Aetna and Humana Kindred Healthcare, are going to start their antitrust reviews pretty soon and we'll likely hear um, sort of what the Justice Department thinks of those type of consolidations in healthcare um, in 2018. So Mike, much of 2017 felt like a run-up towards last week's big vote to rescind the Obama-era net neutrality rules from 2015. How might we see a coming together of privacy and antitrust law as the FTC takes over regulation of internet service providers from the FCC? Yeah, that, that's um, sort of one of the interesting things to try and uh, look forward to um, uh, in this sort of new era that we're in now. Um, the stated goal of um, enforcement uh, under these new net neutrality rules um, will be that um, antitrust really goes back into the driver's seat in terms of uh, policing any uh, violations of net neutrality. So um, really all the new rules say is that there has to be transparency, that if an internet service provider engages in uh, blocking, slowing, or um, charging fees to favor content, all it has to do is disclose those practices to the public and to the FCC. And um, the plan is that the FTC in, in, in those cases would then jump into action and they would either use um, Section 5 of the FTC Act or um, the Sherman Act to 
you know, police any uh, serious abuses. Um, now, um, as everything in in Washington seems to uh, be, uh, net neutrality has become a hugely partisan issue. The vote was completely along party lines, and the two commissioners of the FTC have um, uh, are, are vehemently disagreeing with one another whether antitrust and the FTC in general is is uh, is the proper agency to oversee net neutrality. Um, the Republican acting chair, Maureen Olhausen, uh, has said that, yeah, antitrust will work just fine to, uh, to make sure uh, that uh, ISPs don't get away with any net neutrality abuses. But the Democratic member of the FTC, Terrell McSweeney, has said, no, that's ridiculous. Um, uh, events move too quickly in, in uh, the sphere of the Internet to really rely on antitrust litigation to, to stop them. That, you know, um, a young market entrant could be killed in the cradle before um, the factual inquiry that would, would uh, bolster uh, an antitrust case could ever be put together. So um, I guess we'll see. Um, one thing that we're going to see in the much nearer term clearly is a uh, judicial challenge to the new FCC order. Uh, that could be in the D.C. circuit or it could be in another circuit court around the country. So stay tuned for that. What about congressional action? Do you think we'll see that next year on net neutrality? We are going to see some congressional action. Um, the Democrats, uh, led by Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts, have already said that they are going to um, attempt um, the same sort of rollback that the Republicans did uh, for the ISP privacy rules. Um, the Democrats um, don't have the votes to make that happen, but they can make a lot of noise. And, you know, one thing that you're seeing is that uh, privacy, data security, net neutrality, these were once uh, extremely wonky issues that really didn't register in mainstream politics, but that's changed. And uh, the Democrats clearly think they can make some hay against the Republicans by sort of portraying them as, um, you know, the lackeys of uh, big ISPs that want to take away your rights. So uh, we are going to see this um, Congressional Review Act uh, go forward in the, in, um, the Senate. I, I think we'll see a floor vote on that, but we, we are definitely not going to see that pass. Uh, but, 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 but stay tuned because there will be a lot of uh, hue and cry about that. So, Leah, um, the Supreme Court has agreed to take on a number of antitrust cases for its next term, which is unusual. What are the antitrust cases that the high court will be looking at next year? So, as you say, it's really unusual for the Supreme Court to uh, agree to hear antitrust cases, which is what makes this so exciting. Um, the High Court has agreed to hear two antitrust cases so far, and they've also asked the Solicitor General to weigh in on two others. So we may have as many as four antitrust cases before the Supreme Court next year. So the first one they agreed to take um, is one that involves American Express. In 2010, the Justice Department and several states sued American Express over these rules that they have called anti-steering rules. Essentially what they do is they require that merchants aren't allowed to ask customers to use a different card than American Express because American Express often costs a lot of money uh, for the merchant to process and they don't want merchants to essentially say, hey, would you mind using a Visa or MasterCard? So the Justice Department challenged these. There was a trial in Brooklyn Federal Court and the Justice Department won. 
American Express appealed, and last year in September, the Second Circuit reversed. They said that uh, the Justice Department and the lower trial court didn't take into account both sides of the market. So a credit card has two markets, the side with the merchants and the side with the customers. So while American Express might be charging merchants a lot, they're doing that because they like to offer a lot of rewards to customers. And the Second Circuit said that the lower court should have taken into account all of the stuff that the customers are getting out of American Express's higher prices. So the Justice Department left the sort of <laughs> so the Justice Department left the case sort of on the floor at the Second Circuit, but the states who were involved in that case asked the Supreme Court to take up the appeal, and the Supreme Court agreed. So what we're looking at is probably a really important decision on two-sided markets, which um, occur in more than just credit cards. There are definitely things that happen online, like online platforms like Google, Amazon. They also happen in health insurance. Uh, health insurance is considered a classic two-sided market. So the Supreme Court's decision in American Express is probably going to have a lot of side effects in other industries. So the second um, case that the Supreme Court uh, has already agreed to take was a little bit of surprise and not that many people were paying attention to it. It involves uh, Solar City, which is a subsidiary of Tesla that specializes in solar energy. The company had sued Salt River Project Agricultural Improvement and Power District, say that five times fast, which is a utility company based in Phoenix, Arizona. And essentially, Solar City said that Salt River had adopted a pricing plan that charged an extra fee to customers who generate their own power, making it so customers with solar panels would pay about the same amount to the utility as customers who didn't have them. The utility company tried to argue that it couldn't be sued for antitrust violations because of the state action doctrine, which is a legal doctrine that allows states to immunize some conduct that might otherwise violate the antitrust law. The judge disagreed and said that they couldn't use the state action doctrine, as did the Ninth Circuit. Um, Salt River appealed to the Supreme Court, and the question they're asking is somewhat of a technical one. It has to do with when you can appeal an order about state action immunity, whether you can do it sort of immediately at the beginning of a case or whether you have to, do, have to wait until later. So this one is pretty interesting because it's the third state action case that the Supreme Court has taken in the past couple of years. And state action comes up in lots of different contexts, particularly with um, professional licensing and um, a lot of uh, other areas involving like healthcare, that which is often state run. Um, so as I mentioned, there are actually two other pending cases that the Supreme Court has asked the Solicitor General to weigh in on. The Solicitor General is the lawyer at the US Department of Justice who represents the government in all the cases. And it's important when the Supreme Court asks the SG to weigh in because very frequently they take the SG's advice. So if the Solicitor General recommends they hear a case, they will often agree to hear it. And if the SG recommends that they don't hear a case, they'll often decline an appeal. So the first case that the Supreme Court asked the SG to weigh in on is uh, the vitamin C case. And this is one of my all-time favorite cases. Um, it involves a group of plaintiffs who accused four Chinese manufacturers of vitamin C of price fixing. And the Chinese companies said, came back and said, yes, we were price fixing, but we had to do it because the Chinese government told us to. So um, <laughs> the case went to trial. A jury didn't really buy that argument and uh, found one of the companies liable for $147 million. 
and it went up to appeal to the Second Circuit where it was reversed. Um, and the Second Circuit said that the lower court should have listened to the Chinese Ministry of Commerce, which had intervened in the case and said, yes, we required these companies to fix prices. So um, now at the Supreme Court, the SG recommended that the justices hear the case and reverse the Second Circuit's ruling. So the Ju Justice Department thinks the Second Circuit's decision is essentially too strict. It would require any court to just accept a declaration from a foreign government without sort of like looking into the details behind it, whether the foreign government was sort of like just making a pretextual argument to like help out its companies. Um, the Supreme Court is supposed to announce on January 5th whether it will hear that appeal, and um, we're really looking forward to finding out whether they hear that one. And one more case. So this, the second case involves Apple iPhones. Um, plaintiffs sued Apple several years ago, alleging that the company monopolized the market for iPhone apps because it doesn't allow app developers to use their own store or sell directly to customers and instead requires them to use the app store. Um, a California federal judge threw out the case in 2013, saying the plaintiffs didn't actually have any standing to sue. And in January, the Ninth Circuit reinstated the case, finding that they do have standing because they purchased these apps directly from Apple. So Apple appealed to the Supreme Court, and in October, the High Court asked the Solicitor General for its input. Um, the Solicitor General hasn't actually weighed in yet. It will probably do so in the first couple months of the year, and then the Supreme Court will probably announce pretty soon after that whether they'll take it. Thanks, Leah. Well, I'll be looking forward in particular to the uh, the Apple decision, as we've been following that out here for um, about five years, I think, already. <laughs> so uh, uh, go Supreme Court. Let's hope they take it. We'll <laughs> yes, see. take more antitrust cases. <laughs> Um, so thanks. Uh, this has been fun and it's been fun going and, and sort of doing a recap of 2017 and, and looking forward to 2018. This has been another edition of the MLEX podcast. To all our listeners, have a happy holiday season and thanks for listening. You'll hear more from us in 2018. <music>